and ML really helps map a lot of these business activities to security activities, which, you know, I have certain people on my team that are very highly trained and I call them my secret weapons because the ability to pull up, hey, you have X number of million dollars of business tied to this activity in security takes me from a cost center to a, a revenue enabler or even a revenue generator. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I'm back with Steve McGowan, VP of Cybersecurity at BlackBerry. Steve returns to go beyond buzzwords and dig into the truth of ML and AI in the world of cybersecurity. Whether it's educating executives, tackling sophisticated threat actors, or even avoiding bias, Steve joins us to cover how utilizing data science in your security program can effectively reduce friction and translate risk. As companies struggle to add ML and data science to their security arsenal, countless attackers are already utilizing automation against them. So why is it vital to baseline normal behavior in your environment? Is it realistic to aspire to a single pane of glass? And how can data science help security leaders secure funding? So for the regular listener, you will know the person I'm about to introduce again. Steve has been on the show before, and we actually had so much content that we invited him back to kind of go over what was left of my outline. Because I do think it's such an important topic. It's, it's data science, it's ML, AI, and kind of how these are interrelated and conflated and how we as security leaders should work through these concepts. So, Steve, thank you so much for being back on the show. For those that might not have listened, that would have been, I think, episode 73. If you would, please introduce yourself again. Thank you very much, Stephen. My name is Steve McGowan. I'm Vice President of Cybersecurity at BlackBerry, responsible primarily for the corporate security practice, but also for security software development support, as well as on the IoT side, the autonomous vehicle practice and, and other IoT initiatives for security purposes, corporate, you know, infrastructure level security purposes on those initiatives. So if you read between the lines there, Steve, even if you don't read between the lines, Steve does a lot. And a lot of what Steve does, we aren't even able to talk about specifically, but uh, related to the nature of this show, he's agreed to kind of come on and be kind of that virtual mentor, coach, provider and knowledge on a variety of topics. So we won't be getting specific into anything directly into what BlackBerry does necessarily, but we're going to lean on his vast experience, both at his current employer and prior and just as a, an involved person in the security community. Uh, to kind of dig into some other topics, I want to start off with the highest level question. And we've, we've kind of had this, it's sort of a joke, but it happens in some organizations. What's your response or what's your, your coaching advice to the CISO or security leader that gets the phone call from someone above them, some executive and says, hey, I went to this conference or I read on an article on the airplane about this AI stuff. And, you know, we really need to add some of that. We really need to get some of that AI. And I think we need some of that AI inside of security. Like, and you're expected to have an answer, maybe live or maybe in an email. Like, 
take a deep breath and walk us through how do you even approach that? Well, it's it's certainly something we've all heard before. There's definitely a lot of misconceptions out there. The the word AI is a big buzzword that is, you know, conflated with what it actually is under the hood. Really full on AI, you know, that's still theoretical being studied in universities and so on and so forth and they're advancing it quickly, but what really AI means to the security world and in real world applications is more machine learning. And there are two different types of machine learning. There's supervised and unsupervised machine learning. And that's really where most of the current practical utilizations of that technology are taking place. For instance, in security softwares, modern signature-based antiviruses, antivirus softwares are, are going the way to the dodo bird. And things are coming in with using machine learning to identify patterns in data. I think the big thing when you get an executive that hears this and says, we have to get ourselves some of that AI, you know, they're not really understanding what it does, what it can do, what it can't do, what the risks associated with it are, because there are, there are risks. And so, you know, the need to set expectations, realistic expectations about what can be accomplished that is of value, most importantly, that's a business value. And I say business value, there are many business uses of this technology for marketing purposes and targeting people with advertising and whatnot. But for security purposes, the business application, I would say, is directly related to protecting business activity and preventing risks to, to revenue generation and so on and so forth. And, and really, you know, there's a need to have somebody that really can explain these concepts and educate the executive to think that this isn't some magic wand that you can just install and everything's going to be happy and wonderful and the birds will fly or the birds will chirp and the flowers will bloom kind of thing, which is quite often what you get from executives that are non-technical. So I, I think setting proper expectations about what you're going to accomplish based on what the data is available and what can happen, what can go awry if you don't do it right. So take us back to, so you laid out the, the groundwork perfectly there, but I think for those that are stuck in the moment, who may not even know as much about this as you do, or may not have the team like you do, you know, the experience, all the rest, how do you pull it back and say, hey, thanks for the interest. This is transformational. I too think this is something that could help us. However, how do you break, you know, they're, if they're interested does that mean starting some sort of steering committee? Does it mean the creation of, you know, maybe finding use cases that might benefit, be benefited by ML? Do you reply with yes, and I think these use cases or, you know, how do you interject? Because your view might be more of a security related slant. How do you turn that into action rather than just sort of the show business of the ask of the executive? If you're going to say, hey, if you're serious, this is what I think we can do, how would you phrase that to this executive that might not get all of what you just outlined initially to me? Yeah, well, a lot of it depends on the size of the company, the resources at that company's disposal, and yes, use cases. What, what is the goal they're trying to achieve? And I, I would say one thing, you say my, my use cases would be larger security. I think the line between security and business has been substantially blurred, especially in recent years. Security, you know, I'm a, I'm a business enabler, so I'm not only did I study it in school, the business use cases and whatnot, but I see them as heavily intertwined. Like a lot of the work I do is not just about protecting corporate assets; it's about protecting revenue and enabling revenue generation. So there's a lot of gray area in the middle. It's just not I'm not just purely a security guy. I'm a business enabler as well. I'm a business leader. I have to be. 
Uh, you know, my job is to, you know, enable the company to make money and protect it from risks that threaten its ability to make money. So there's, there's a lot of middle zone territory there. Now, the one thing I would say is, you know, if you're in a small company, a little mom and pop shop, 100 employees or something like that, you know, the idea that you're going to hire yourself a data scientist and solve world peace in a week is wildly unrealistic. Data scientists are very hard to find, qualified data scientists, very hard to find, very hard to retain. And one data scientist without the ecosystem around them is not going to be able to accomplish what you want, either in the security space or in the marketing and business generation space. You're much better off to go out to a third party if you are a small mom and pop that wants that. Or there are tools, say, on, on Amazon and so on and so forth that allow data science and ML. There's something called auto ML. It's a young product, but it provides a lot of value, say, more in the marketing space, where it's designed to auto-tune itself and kind of provide close enough data for marketing purposes and so on and so forth. And those tools are much better suited to smaller shops. Doesn't work in security because close enough isn't really very good in security, right? I mean, you need accuracy. You need facts. You're looking for artifacts. You're looking for patterns and logs that say somebody has done the same activity 20 times in a row, three milliseconds apart. That looks suspicious because it's not normal. That's the kind of stuff you're looking for in the security world. And AutoML can't serve that. But most of the company, like I worked at Royal Bank of Canada before, we had a huge team. I worked in a data and analytics department, which is how I got so heavily involved in data science and ML. You know, huge teams, sophisticated leaders of those teams who understood the power of ML and what could and could not be done. You know, that's not something a smaller or even a mid-sized company is going to be able to do. So there, there are varying levels. You either, you're using the affordable and easily trainable tools that are available on the cloud platforms, or you're going out to a third party. It's only really the larger enterprise companies that can afford to hire their own data scientists. There's also another angle on it. You know, many of the tools, say, you know, what security software vendors are coming up with now are based on ML because the old signature-based antiviruses, so, I mean, there are still threats out there that they can defend against, but they're largely ineffective these days against zero-day threats and, and the far more sophisticated threats that are becoming available. You know, machine learning is the only way to pick out the patterns. So there's, there's multiple layers. It depends on what your situation is. I think the tools that are available, say, on Amazon are good for the purpose that they're designed to help with. The tools that are coming out of security software vendors nowadays are much better. Actually, they're dramatically better than what signature-based antivirus can accomplish. So again, it depends on what you're trying to do with it. You need to set these expectations with senior management. And also, even for a large company, it's very easy to waste huge amounts of money, time, and effort on a failed effort. If senior executives, senior management doesn't understand the limitations of the data sets that are available. So you've covered a, a lot there, and I didn't want to break the, you're a rarity on the show. Many cases, I'll take somebody and I'll stop them on purpose for those that listen. I'll say, let me stop you there. And you had this sort of stream of, you were answering all the questions I was going to ask. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to let Steve roll. However, there's stuff that I want to go back to still. You made a statement that. I think most people would shy away from, in terms of if they're a leader of a security team, you made a statement saying the line between security and business is now blurred, and you view yourself as a protector of revenue. I bet not one in a hundred CISOs would say that. They would want to say it, nothing against them, but I bet not one in a hundred. That is the world we live in now. Oh, no question. 
But I think that there's that I don't know that many know how to get there or they're struggling to get there or their environment doesn't allow them to or their skill set, their something doesn't allow. If you were saying most people wouldn't evaluate their own security program, I don't think on that. And I wish they would. And it's no offense to anybody. But the line between security and business is blurred. I think they would agree, but then they'd say, but I'm not sure that we're in that blur. It's more of a point, not a question. But I mean, do you agree with my statement? Do you think the numbers would be that bad that I get one in a hundred? Is it, is it more or less? Yeah, I've never done any. You know, being a data science background, I'm not sure I would go with that number without proving it. But I mean, I'd pull the data and scan it for evidence. But I mean, the thing is, I have said a GRC team, we maintain certifications. Without those certifications, we don't get certain contracts kind of thing. And ML really helps map a lot of these business activities to security activities, which, you know, I have certain people on my team that are very highly trained and I call them my secret weapons because the ability to pull up, hey, you have X number of million dollars of business tied to this activity in security takes me from a cost center to a a revenue enabler or even a revenue generator. And that message, I think, you know, quite often what happens is you get a lot of security leaders who don't really understand security. They know it's bad. They know they have to put attention into it, but they don't really know how and why. And so often you'll get people who want a CISO with an MBA or a business background. I've, you know, seen a lot of CISOs with accounting backgrounds and, you know, nothing against them or anything, but it's a different skill set, right? And, and the reason that leaders want that is because they want somebody that can speak to them in their language. They want somebody that is business friendly, that can explain the problems to them in business terms. So that's executive leadership, wanting somebody that can communicate with them in a way they can digest. The problem with that is these people don't tend to be sufficiently deep in the weeds on the technical side to really understand the problem. So you're either getting an imbalance in one direction, or quite often I've heard before people say technical leaders don't make good chiefs. And I wholly disagree with that because I think if you don't understand what's going on under the hood, if you're not the person that's been hands-on keyboard for X number of years, You're making decisions, not really understanding the downstream impact. So I I think quite often so many leaders that are either too much on the business side or too much on the technical side, when really the sweet spot is in the middle. Somebody that understands the impact of technical decisions, but also knows how to translate that. I spoke a lot in my last CISO podcast about translating, about how I, I was reporting the CFO in a couple of roles in the past, and I thought it was painful at first until I realized that it was teaching me to translate into business language. That's probably the two roles that advanced my leadership skill set the most, because having to communicate security issues to an audience that, you know, an accountant, essentially, who has no clue what I'm talking about, that really taught me to transform my message into something he could digest. And that, to me, both sides of the fence, both sides of the skill set are absolutely critical to success. Because a guy with an MBA who's never logged onto a server in his life has no idea what the downstream impact of his decisions are. And I've been hired in places before where I've had to spend considerable time and money cleaning up the mistakes they make because they don't get it, right? They just don't understand. No, I'm with you. You covered a lot there. I think that that's, God, there's so many other things to kind of go back into. But I think one of the things was going in and maybe it's a stretch goal. You said reporting to the CFO, maybe it's the right CFO. Maybe every CISO needs to do that at some point, or every security leader needs that. It was it was definitely a rite of passage. I was, there were a few times I was a wee bit frustrated at the time, but I realized, you know, looking back on it, how much it advanced my skill set. Although I don't think a CISO should ever report to a CFO. I mean, I have firm belief a CISO should never 
report to a CIO because our, our mandates conflict. A CIO is about service delivery and availability. And my job is to say, hey, let's not leave the barn door wide open here. You know, they get rewarded. They get a pat on the back for five nines of availability. And then the security guy comes along and says, no, you got to dial that availability back. Otherwise, the bad guys can get in too. Well, this is conflicting role, right? I think what happens with the CIO role is, again, executive leadership is looking for somebody, you know, one throat to choke, as they say in the industry. You know, they're looking for somebody that they can go to and just one-stop shopping rather than having to remember the difference between what I do and what the CIO does. And I think that that's a common desire of executive leadership. They're just looking to simplify their life and get the information they need with as little effort as possible. Not being lazy, just for understanding purposes and for expedience and efficiency. But the reality is that putting a CISO under a CIO just downplays or downgrades the quality of security you get because our roles conflict. And it's a lot the same with a CFO. Although it advanced my skill set significantly, the problem is they have a different mindset. They're trying to solve different problems than you are. You know, as a business leader, needing to and understanding the need to, most importantly, convert my my concerns into a CFO-friendly language is critical. It's critical to my success. It's critical to my place in the company and, and my ability to protect the revenue and so on and so forth. But the biggest problem is these leaders, they tend to be unwittingly, unintentionally, they become more of a barrier than anything. Because you're trying to convince somebody that doesn't really understand what you're talking about and what the really the downstream impact of it is to go and convey that message to somebody else. And they're just not going to do it like you are. So, you know, it's the old adage about nobody's going to sell you like you will. If you try and get somebody else to sell you, they're going to do it, but not with the same enthusiasm and heart that you will. It's the same sort of thing. Nobody else is going to sell my security message as well as I can because although I can communicate it to them, I can explain it to them, they're never going to understand it on the same level I am, and they're never going to have the same impact and influence that I will because it's not their primary mission, right? So I see these reporting structures as, as a barrier to success. I see it as watering down security, as quiescing the voice of security, which actually increases risk. I don't think anybody does this on purpose. I think it's more of a lack of understanding of that dynamic at the executive leadership level. You said it extremely well there. I think the message, one of the things I'll often say is never let anyone dilute your message. And then what happens in the wrong type of reporting arrangement is you get exactly that. And I'd argue I've never reported to a CFO before, but I think that at least out of that, it was some form of a boot camp for you to go and, and learn a currency exchange Right, learn the currency of a different audience, and at least that aided you. And by virtue of you, your program, uh, you at least got that out of it. And I really dislike the CIO reporting relationship as well for the reasons you enumerated. One of the things you mentioned earlier, though, that I want to go back to, and I thought it was—I know you were kind of kidding, but also serious when I said the one in one hundred CISOs making the comment about the sort of the lines being blurred. You said you'd go pull the data. And I think that's an interesting statement because I can tell based on our conversations and the reason why you're saying you're business aligned is you don't make sort of an artificial risk calculation, meaning a lot of times many security teams will take not hard numbers, they'll sort of fudge numbers to identify risk. And it sounds like you actually go out and learn what are the business processes that are relevant to revenue generation or supportive of that, and then actually getting data back into your 
analytics platforms or your smart people, and you're able to maybe sometimes maybe share information that they were previously unaware of and maybe mix that in with, you know, threat or attack information. Maybe. And you didn't say any of that, but it sounds like going out and getting information that's specific to application behavior or consumer behavior, the things that the quote unquote air quote, the business cares about. If you're not doing that, or if that's not a stretch goal, you might need to consider that or add that, right? Leading organizations are doing that in information security. Do you at least agree to that statement? Uh, yeah, I would remove the word maybe very definitely from that statement. That is absolutely what I do. I and I, I always joke that when I have a director that runs my GRC team, and uh, I call him my secret weapon because he's got a finance background. He came from finance. He's got access to all contract values and whatnot. And, and when I'm trying to, you know, I, I'll go back. I'll regress just slightly. And, you know, like I always drill into my leaders. I took a course in. You know, I, I've understood risk management for a long time. As I told you in the last podcast, I didn't realize at the time. I call the Air Force, I was an aircraft maintenance engineer in the Air Force in the F-18 program. I call that the best education in risk management that I never knew I was getting at the time. Because when I went to university many years later for risk management, I said, you know, I realized very quickly that it was all the same stuff. And I'd been doing it for 30 years. And I always tell my leaders, I said, risk management is the language by which security leaders get money. Because it allows you to take your security problems and translate them into dollars and cents. And my GRC leader has a finance background, so he is constantly pulling data for me. If you know, if we have, if I'm looking for resources to support, say, a SOC two certification or any other of the government certifications that are out there, ISMAP for Japan, that sort of thing, I always say, okay, X number of contract value, X number of ECV at risk. If we don't do the certification, you know, X number of dollars to achieve the certification, X number of revenue at risk, create a balance, create a business case. That's what I present. That's how I get my resources. You need to convert everything into dollars and cents. So yeah, I mean, the data, I pull that heavily on that in order to to support my arguments for resources and funding and so on and so forth. It begins to be a bit viral. And I I was never at a point doing what you're talking about directly. I, I wasn't, first off, I wasn't the CISO, but I was pulling in intelligence about the environment that was previously unknown. And you go from the uninvited guest often are the last to the table to often the first invited when a problem happens or when a decision needs to be made or when we're looking to prioritize something. And and if you begin trying to solve problems for other people and or can confidently state based on fact, on information, it changes the way the security team is viewed in a company. And it's amazing. And it's such a, it, and you feel so much better. And the other thing that happens, and, and Steve, you may not face this, maybe you did later, or, or sorry, earlier in your career, I faced it, where the security team is kind of the catch-all for every outage. If there's an outage, it's probably the security tool. And sometimes it is the security tool, mind you. But the blame, anything that's sort of unknown, the blame goes that direction. The goal is, is get smarter than the people making the accusations and then help them in their next problem to call that out. and. What you're talking about is so much more advanced. It's more business-centric. I'm talking about more operational-centric. But there's a lesson in both of those situations. And boy, it feels good when you turn that corner. And, and you're talking about turning a completely different corner. And I, I just, I put this out there as a, an inspirational feel-good. Get there, and it feels great. You're separating operational and business. 
again, I'm going to bring them back together, shall we say. Because I always tell my leaders is that my job is not to achieve technical out- outcomes. My job is to achieve business outcomes using technical outcomes. So operational numbers, again, I'd pull the data and I use that to communicate risk. And I say, if, you know, if you don't pay X amount of attention in dollars and cents to this operational problem, and this is the way I communicate, I morph it into that language. If you don't pay X number of attention in dollars and cents to this operational problem, it has a 20% chance of costing you $5 million within a five-year period. So I want $100,000 to remediate that. That sounds like a pretty good deal to a business leader. I'm all about communicating risk management in terms of, okay, you need to achieve business outcomes, but you need to have a healthy balance between intelligent risk management in your pursuit of those business outcomes. And if you get too wild and reckless, well, that could cost you $5 million. I want $100,000 to protect you from that. The answer is usually like, yes, when it's presented like that, right? That's the way you have to think because you're talking to business people that are going to give you the money or not. And I remember somebody, and I can't remember if I mentioned this in the first podcast or not, somebody mentioned to me years ago, security leaders were all complaining about how they couldn't get budget. This one gentleman said to me, you get the budget you deserve. It's all on how you sell it. And how I sell it is through the language of risk management and the basic calculations of risk reward that they teach you in risk management. It's everything to a security leader. It it takes you from a cost center to a revenue enabler and a revenue protection specialist. So, you know, you silly name, but you could call yourself that. That's how I connect with the CT. That's the language I use. That's the message I sell. That reminds me, whoever said that was sort of riffing on Thomas Jefferson, said something, you get the government you deserve, but yeah, you get the budget you deserve. I like that. I think that's, they're right. If you just get up there and start trying to vulnerability management stats, you can just watch the eyes glaze over. They have no idea what you're talking about because you're not talking money, which is all they want to talk about. I don't even want to talk about vulnerability management stats. They sure as hell don't. Like, I mean, yeah, there's stuff that needs fixed. That's hygiene. But yeah, but many people go in and I say many, a large majority of SLT, ELT, and sometimes board conversations involve those numbers. And it, boy, does it make me uncomfortable when I see that. Well, if you get it technically aware, for instance, my EVP at my last job at RBC was an electrical engineer, so he can digest those kind of stats. But again, he had an electrical engineering background, but he's still a businessman. And, you know, you might get through to him with those stats. He knows why they're important, but he's also a bit of a unicorn. Most leaders at that level are not electrical engineers, but it's so much more powerful when you translate it into dollars and cents and financial impact and risk to revenue. So much more powerful. So you said something earlier, in my current role at XBeam, we do a fair amount on this subject, just what I'll call an education around it, normal versus abnormal, and the value that it can bring in finding bad things. And bad may not mean malicious, but it could be an operational failure. It could be some sort of misuse. I don't think many people get that or understand that. You talked about the evolution of endpoint antivirus and there's endpoint tools that are using ML to identify problems and looking for things that aren't normal. And to find abnormal, you must first know normal. That's another thing we spend a fair amount of time sort of as an educational point. I don't know that everybody gets that. And if they do, they may have been poisoned by wrong information. At the highest levels, the normal versus abnormal concept, and then what is allowing you to 
provide that information, meaning to understand it. Obviously, you've got a data science team, you're doing modeling, but walk us through a little bit. Why is detection of bad things, why has it shifted from signatures to normal versus abnormal, or why is that being used as sort of a trigger? Maybe start there from your perspective. Well, I mean, the threat landscape, as we know, has evolved substantially. And and unfortunately, the bad guys, whether they be nation state or just the thieves of the internet, they have nothing but time and money. They've made horrendous amounts of money that allow them to fund themselves much better than most companies are funded. And they have experts that have nothing to do all day but sit down and figure out ways to get around things. And signature-based antivirus solutions are they look backwards they can't react to something until they already know about it well when you've got well-funded people with ml tools themselves the people they're going to school they have the same education the same capability only they have they're much better funded so they find ways creative crafty clever ways that's all they do all day long is sit around finding ways around things and ml is the only thing that can detect patterns that don't make sense. And even that is getting increasingly challenging because, like I said, the level of sophistication you're up against. But I mean, the reality is companies are waking up. I mean, there's a lot of government regulation, Joe Biden executive orders and whatnot coming out, forcing companies to take this stuff more seriously. But in a lot of companies, the business, the pursuit of business overrides the risk and companies leave themselves exposed, as is seen with all the ransomware stats. I don't know how many companies, and I think it's, I read a stat, all these stats you hear, they're different from everyone, but like every 11 seconds, a company falls victim to ransomware. Well, that's because companies are not putting sufficient effort, funding, and, and attention on risk management, on the achievement of revenue, but protecting that revenue intelligently. And, you know, it's just short sighted, it's a lack of awareness. Most people, they know security is bad, but they don't really know why. And I, I keep hearing from so many people, why should I care? It's no big deal. You know, like people just don't get it. Like, unless you're, you work in this industry, you don't realize how bad it's gotten, how sophisticated the bad guys have gotten. They don't realize what's required. They think it's just whatever, yeah, another breach, who cares, right? You're up against that mindset. So it's a constant battle to communicate in a way that really makes the message get heard and taken seriously. And I, I'm going to take it back to the money thing. You have to convert everything back to money. I'm not, I think I got a little off topic from your last question. I apologize if I did so. No, no, this is perfect. In fact, I'm going to add to this. You know, the other thing that the only thing that outweighs ransomware typically is business email or business executive compromise, right? That's by volume, by dollar amount. And that's virtually the, you know, a very similar sort of failure. Um, it's a little, it can be less technical. But it's amazing that, that the, the vast numbers and how you mentioned, we are funding these organizations, right? They are, they're getting better. They're getting better resourced. The line is blurring between criminal and nation state. We're actually seeing some cooperation there, interestingly. Not always, but some. I was going to say, it depends on what country and what the agenda is, but yeah. There's certainly mimicking of tradecraft and technique. It's interesting to see this, the, the sort of the lines there. But really, you mentioned it, the maturity of even the criminal adversary, their use of automation. Most is profitable stuff. Yeah. Well, most people wouldn't realize even when credentials are stolen, how fast, how quickly, depending on the situation, how quickly they'll be tested. 
to be reused. It's not like they go into a hopper and somebody checks it in a couple of days. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's important to note as well, like we have tools like UEBA as uh, behavior analytics, user entity behavior analytics that uses ML to look for patterns. Well, the bad guys have the same tools and they use them oppositely to the way that we use them. They're testing the second you stand up a container on AWS, within milliseconds, they're hitting it. Right? And that's, that's not a human doing that. These are algorithms that they've set up to, to just bang away at anything new, looking for vulnerabilities. It's literally less than a second before a new container is getting attacked. I think that's, that's fascinating. And even there was a new CrowdStrike report, threat hunting report, that the breakout time was a little higher than I thought. And I like this number. I think it's something that most organizations should think about is how long, even if one entity, one thing, one endpoint, one server is compromised, how then resilient are you? What's the anticipated time for there to be the second, right? So you have the, the beginning of some form of lateral movement to go from one compromised machine to two. And that's just one data source. There's, there's other reports to reference, but I, they had elicited about an hour and a half, which I think is higher than I thought it would be. I figured the number would be lower. But when you look at the crummy part is you're starting to see for, for many organizations more automation on the adversary side than on the defender side, which is, that's a pretty heavy statement. It is. And that's why the, the rising popularity of zero trust and micro-segmentation and whatnot. The bottom line is you just have to limit the size of the sandbox. So if they can move laterally, they can only move so far. That kind of architecture is becoming, and there are softwares that mimic it virtually because implementation of you know, zero trust is a great concept. If you read all the different levels and layers of it, implementing that in a large, complex corporation is much easier said than done. It requires significant money, political support, cooperation, and you know there are there are ways to do it much more easily. But that's why these things are becoming popular because it's virtually, you know, it's guaranteed. It's an unknown thing that somebody is going to get in. Really, there are two things I always advocate. First off, resiliency. Make sure you've got backups that uh, immutable backups that can't be messed with and make sure you limit the size of their scope of their blast radius if they get into a segment make sure that their ability to move about is limited through micro segmentation and there are various ways to do that softwares are coming out that make it easier not all of it scales to a large environment but micro segmentation is you know in, in many large environments they find this stuff challenging because it's just so complex and, you know, they worry about business impact, negative business impact outages and stuff like that. But it's really your only defense in limiting, as I say, limiting the blast radius of any hit, the ability to move laterally. So I want to spend a little more time on just your high level advice. You spent a little bit of time early on about, I like to begin sentences with, you know, you know, you're headed down the wrong path if, and first was, you know, no business objectives, kind of getting back to that initial question from the imaginary ex executive. But you also mentioned that there's a fair amount of risks involved if you start off down this sort of journey, maybe a misguided one. What are the other risks that you would outline, potential risks or maybe observable risks if you have sort of a wayward data science ML program, you're trying to sort of build it yourself and what would you outline be sort of indicators of failure there? Well, I mean, it's a well-known thing bias in data sets is easy to get into. It's easy to get pulled off in the wrong direction. Like when, when the data scientists are actually you know, fitting their data, it's very easy to develop biases in the models that can skew the results. I mean, there's a famous case with, it's not really bias, but it's more about just how things have evolved very rapidly. There was a case, I can't remember how many years ago, I'm going to say five, six, seven years ago, somewhere around there, 
where somebody at Microsoft had come out with an ML engine that would speak to customers online, and it was a, a chatbot kind of thing. And somebody figured out that they could get it to say Nazi sayings and racial slurs and stuff like that just for fun. And the thing was repeating back anti-Semitism and whatnot. Microsoft quickly took that down. And that was kind of a lesson learned. Like, the data can lie. If you don't look at it right, if you, you know, it comes back to also senior leadership expectations. But even at the data scientist level, they've come to learn and, and any well-studied data scientist knows that data can lead you off in the wrong direction if you want it to if you let it, so to speak. The risk of bias, you know, people bring their own biases even to the fitting process of data with the model and whatnot. You really have to be cognizant and conscious of that to make sure that you're not baking your own bias into your activities, into your work, and drawing the wrong conclusions from it. It's much like a political thing. Like, you know, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're going to see things a certain way. And if you, there's something called confirmation bias in the political world where people hear the answer they want to hear because it's confirming what they want to think. Same thing can happen with data science and you need to be very cognizant of that. that. That's a big risk because you can start doing the wrong things and spending the wrong money and putting your effort in the wrong places based upon unintentional biases in the data. Interesting. You also made a statement to me when we spoke last that divided attention is bad and that attacks will be overlooked and you and I talked about like, you know, not adding, making sure you're not adding another screen to sort of the, you know, place to go look when you're trying to solve a problem or, or identify a problem. You know, you said data needs to bring things together, not pull things apart. Like, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I think, you know, everybody talks about single pane of glass. And it's funny, I was asked about this at a conference a few weeks back. Everybody talked about single pane of glass. And it's like, well, single pane of glass is, is not necessarily a reality. It's more of a concept. It's more of a way of operating kind of thing. You know, the idea that you're going to get every piece of security information you want presented through one single pane of glass is nirvana, but not the truth, unfortunately. It's more like a, a concept that you work towards, something you strive for to bring things together. You'll never get it perfect. You'll never get everything in one pane of glass, but you try, and you try to mesh and amalgamate data. And a big problem with that, same with the bias problem, same with marketing and whatnot, it's quite often, you know, I, I think I mentioned it in my last podcast, I read a post on LinkedIn one time that said uh, data science is 10% data management and 90% anger management or something like that. And they showed all the different formats that you could, 98 different ways you could spell the word Philadelphia and data scientists have to mash all that into one usable data set. Data quite often doesn't cooperate and you can get yourself into a situation where you've invested a great deal and just can't make the data do what you want it to do. That's definitely a risk with this stuff. So, you know, working towards having realistic goals, having realistic understanding of what can be accomplished and what can't be accomplished at the senior executive level and setting those expectations correctly is, is critical. I mean, I think it's it's the point where, especially on this topic, I, I try to keep the questions fairly open-ended and, and let you kind of grab to what is most top of mind or, or if there's a, an example like you talked about getting asked about, I think that's perfect. We even talked about the notion, you mentioned this sort of a goal that you may not ever really achieve. It's sort of a mindset. We even talked about flow state, right? Making sure what's the effect of all of this information in daily operations, right? So you're looking for information, but then how does it affect the operations team, meaning the people that are the defenders, the people that are making decisions, the people in. So there's, there's a machine, whether it's built or bought, that is providing an output. And then you then have to consider that as an input into all the rest of the other stuff that you're trying to do. 
Can you talk a little bit about sort of the flow of that? And that's vast. I know I'm, I'm asking you a, a question that's, uh, you know, a mile wide, but a little bit about there's an output and then that then influences the other things you got to do, right? And so how do you deliver that? Because one of them sort of batch or, or could be near real time. And the rest is kind of shimming in with all the rest you're doing operationally to find, respond, identify, for example, in the SOC. Can you talk a little bit about that? Of What is that relationship like for those that don't know? Yeah. Well, actually, the SOC is probably the best use case for this. And, and as a continuation, perhaps a better answer for what you asked in the, in the last question, we work towards single pane of glass as a concept, not a reality. And, you know, one of the things I always seek to do, and I train my leaders to do, is always think about how we can bring data together so that your single pane of glass isn't just about an actual physical monitor that you're looking at with one set of data on it. It's also about how does the data mesh together to answer questions. From a data science perspective, that's the way I look at it. The data doesn't always cooperate. Sometimes you're trying to solve a problem in, for the SOC. You're trying to put information in front of people from multiple disparate sources into a format that they can digest easily with the lowest friction possible. I always talk about lowering friction. I use data to lower friction. That's actually one of my goals, one of my yearly goals with my boss, is using data, using the power of data to lower friction in processes and business processes to make interaction with security easier, lower the PETA fact, so to speak. Unfortunately, the data doesn't always cooperate. You know, quite often you get disparate systems that were designed by different people at different times, and you need to bring data all together into a usable solution. And quite often that solution looks like someone dragged a magnet through a parts bin. Rarely does any leader get to design fresh from word go perfectly the way they want it to be. And this all plays back into many of the other things we've talked about about data science too, and this is the anger management part of data wrangling. But, you know, that's what a data scientist has to do is take all these disparate sources that don't mesh, don't match, and bake them together into something usable. And whether that's a business use case or a security use case, it's the same. I try and follow that philosophy when I'm trying to feed my sock. When we're going through audit or tooling against the MITRE framework or something like that, like what problems are we trying to solve? What information are we trying to provide that is of the highest value to produce the greatest reduction in risk? And I teach my leaders to think about the data and how the data works together in order to answer those questions and allow my sock analysts, my incident responders and whatnot, to respond. Sometimes it's tooling. Sometimes it's the way we put tools together to make sure that the tools mesh, to make sure that the data that behind those tools meshes. Like it's a multi-layered approach, tooling data. That data is always at the bottom. Data is always foundational to everything for me. That's where the power is, right? It's just how you bring that data together. Is it tooling? Is it philosophy? Is it architecture? Many different ways to skin the cat. But ultimately, putting the right information in front of my incident responders and allowing them to see it in a format that is as easily digestible as possible. It's just a, you know, you call that single pane of glass as a philosophy, but that's what works. Just making their job easier, lowering friction so that they can see the data from different sources that correlates and whatnot. There are tools that do that. Sometimes it's people, sometimes it's process, but many layers, many ways to solve that problem, but it's an overriding philosophy that I follow. You mentioned something earlier about MITRE, and we're drawing a little bit close to time, but I want, if you could, I, I love MITRE Attack, Defend, and now they have this campaign lens that they've released now that's fantastic, that ties back to adversaries and a bunch of goodness there. But can you give, I think this is important, 
for those that may not even be down the full data science path, but you're sort of picking the MITRE framework and looking at vectors, adversaries, that kind of thing. How are you using MITRE attack, probably, to help focus the lens of what you're doing at a high level? Maybe just some tips there and how you're doing it, maybe a couple things to consider for the listener. I actually, I've, I've gone through this exercise. It was one of the first things I did when I got here. I said, show me all the tools that we own and let's lay it out in a, mm-hmm. on a nice big whiteboard, all the tools we own, what capabilities they have and you know what problems they're solving and map those problems to the MITRE framework. So you don't just randomly buy tools in a one-off, okay, we got to solve this problem and then look at the other one completely separately. I map the tools that we use to the MITRE framework. And are we solving all the problems in the MITRE framework with the tools we own? If not, dump this, dump that, dump that, get this. That, that, that's the philosophy I use. It's a classic risk management story. Like, find your problems, map your solutions to those problems. My solutions are in tooling and people. So I map my tooling and my people and their activities directly to the problems identified in the MITRE framework so that I'm being very methodical, data-driven in my, my methodology to protecting the company. I love the MITRE. There's a couple organizations out there that do even a heat map against the attack framework that shows sort of what are the attributes that are used most against. And I think it's a, you know, showing that mapping is a, is a great thought experiment for, I think, especially for the junior analyst to say, okay, you want to buy something because it sounds cool, but here's where this fits in. And then you can also use it to the executive leadership to show, you know, here's sort of a coverage map in essence. Well, I mean, you'd be surprised how much money gets wasted on very expensive software that is not solving, you know, your number one problems. I've realigned my entire budget and my software arsenal, so to speak, to map to the MITRE framework because those are the problems I want to solve. And there were hundreds of thousands of dollars were going out the door on things that were not the pointy edge of the sword, as we like to call it. So, you know, that kind of reconciliation really increases and optimizes the effectiveness of your security program. So I think uh, usually for the the regular listener, I would close on a question, you know, pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? And I think we, we've already asked Steve that, uh, and that'd be a waste of time. But I think a version of that is maybe pursuant to all of what we've talked about on this show, data science, machine learning, AI to some degree, what does being an executive that leverages those capabilities specifically data science and ML, what does that mean to you in the end? What is this topic? If you could put one phrase or one point on it, what does it mean to Steve? I would go back to the, I am a business leader. I am enabling business outcomes and protecting business revenue using technical means. So many leaders I've found, they can't get out of the technical space, which is technical is tactical. That's the thing you have to understand. Strategic is business. Your job, if you want to get money, if you want to be an effective part of the company, if you want to be, you know, have a seat at the table with the C team, you need to understand that your job is to enable business outcomes and protect business revenue. All of the technical things you do are for that purpose. That's the mindset shift that needs to happen. Excellent. Steve, I can't thank you enough for making even more time for us. This has been a great time. What an awesome topic. Awesome show. You're a gem. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. 
check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.